This is the second of six podcasts from the Royal Irish Academy History of Emotions series. The speaker is Professor Fanola O'Kane on detachment. In around the year 1700, five brothers Caddy left Galway to seek their fortunes on the island of Jamaica in the Caribbean. One brother, Dennis, had a daughter Elizabeth who survived him, eventually becoming heiress to all the Kelly estates. She married into the Brown family of Westport County, Galway. Two Kelly plantations appear in the early Jamaican maps, Kelly's Pen and Kelly's Walk. Kelly's Pen was an old Jamaican plantation located in rich lowland close to the sea, while Kelly's Walk, later known as Cocoa Walk, lay inland on higher ground. The brothers became successful planters in that they accumulated enough Jamaican land to become absentee landowners. Edmund Kelly used some of his Jamaican profits to come home and acquire the County Galway estate of List Duff in 1716, and Dennis Kelly lived in Spring Garden, County Galway, when he returned home. Edmund Kelly died in London in 1727 or 1728. Many years later, in 1749, an inventory of his personal estate was made for a legal case taken by Mr. John Humphrey against Mr. Dennis Kelly, who inherited most of his brother's land and personal property. The details of the case remain obscure, but the inventory that the law required to be made still exists among the Westport manuscripts in the National Library of Ireland. It was made by the appraisers Robert Kilby and Dennis Daly, both of Jamaica, and Dennis Daly was probably a scion of the Galway Daly family, who also had many plantations in Jamaica. This rare inventory is the only known instance of an Irish slave-owning family's detailed record of their human property, and the inventory numbered and valued 64 male and 106 female enslaved Africans. It also gave the number and value of the plantation stock, including working steers, cows, heifers, mules and a lone bull, the contents of the house and its various service buildings. Most of all, it carefully listed and valued the enslaved Africans who had died in the period between Edmund Kelly's death and the date of the inventory's making in 1749. I want to highlight the cold, impersonal tone of this inventory and the legal context in which it was made, not to minimise the suffering slavering caused to the individuals listed. The document essentially conveys how slavery was normalised into such common or garden probate documents that are notable for their lack of emotion for use on both sides of the Atlantic. It is distressingly silent on many of the most basic and therefore poignant markers of identity that all people typically possess, place of birth, parentage, age and family. This silence is all the more affecting when contrasted with the exact record of each enslaved African's monetary value. Like many documents that describe an incontrovertibly negative history, this absence of information and absence of emotion speaks louder than its presence. The fate and future of Edmund Kelly's enslaved Africans is not known, but the exact amount of money he might have made if they were sold is. The value of such inventories lies in as much as what they do not record as what they do record, and each inventory's structure and language reveal much about the mentality of the period and of those who made them. Of the male enslaved Africans owned by Edmund Kelly, the most valuable was Carpenter Dick, who was valued at £60. Immediately below him in value were the Coopers, Coffee at £50 and Ian at £49. The comparatively high values placed on enslaved Africans with trades was typical of the period. Three further males were valued at £45, followed by eight at 40 13 at 35 9 at 30 8 at 25 
nine at 20 and two at 15. Six males, presumably children, were each worth five pounds. Five of the males were designated old and of these three were without value, with one man past labour and two runaway. Of the females, the most valuable were Oma, Field Mary, Quachuba, Rachel and Maria, all of whom were worth £40. None of the females was identified with a specific trade or skill, with the exception of Washer Kate, whose abilities in that area only gave her a value of £15. One of the females was strangely given the name Front of House, presumably referring to where she worked. Nine females were worth £35, 12 30 8 20 and a great number, 28 females, were valued at £15. The children in the inventory are not always identified under their own name, but by reference to their mother, such as Little Abba or Little Mary. Some of the enslaved Africans retained their original African names, and a home region was occasionally recorded, such as number 45, Congo, James. Of the household goods listed for the Kelly's Walk Great House, rather than the human chattels, the contents of this Irish Jamaican Great House were not dissimilar to, in Morris Craig's words, a classic Irish house of middle size. The requisite marker of gentility, family silver, was present in the form of two old silver spoons and a porringer in the cook's room. The hall was decorated with 12 prints and it also contained a cot mattress, presumably for front of house to sleep on. The left-hand room, adjacent to the hall, contained a barrel and a stock of blunderbush, or blunderbuss, defined by the Oxford Dictionary as a short, large-bored gun firing balls or slugs. This evidence of substantial ongoing defensive requirements for many guns probably speaks of the general level of disquiet among the white population and the omnipresent fear of uprising by the enslaved. The inventory's description of an outside room is most likely the long veranda that ran across the front facade of the house, which contained a long strip of jalousies or Venetian blinds, which were considered necessary for healthy sleep in tropical climates. The inventory also described the three principal service buildings as the mill house, the boiling house and the still house, all for the production of sugar. The boiling house contained the typical sugar-making equipment of four sugar-making la- ladles, three skimmers, two old basins, and two old copper that were valued at £5 each, the same as a human child. The legacy of Ireland's devastating famine has tended to mask Ireland's own involvement in creating such tragic histories in other countries and on other islands. The harsh reality of Edmund Kelly's slave stock and goods inventory of 1749 brings home the long connection between Westport and Kelly's Pen and between the west of Ireland and the island of Jamaica. Galway's Dennis Daly made an oath on the holy evangelists that he had well and truly valued and appraised the personal estate of Edmund Kelly, according to the best of his skills and judgment. Those skills and that judgment had been partly acquired and formed in his home country of Ireland. The bonds of professional practice, tribal loyalty, contorted legal language and an absence of emotion, which the inventory lays bare, existed in the Irish families of Kelly, Brown and Daly and are somewhat familiar to all who study 18th century Ireland, that they stretched as far as Jamaica. While we typically find such histories of slavery very emotional, those making and using such documents in the 18th century clearly did not. The focus that we find for our rightfully agitated emotions typically falls in the present day on a slave owner's statue or sometimes his or her house. But we forget that the lack of emotion present in such documents extended far beyond the point structure that we want to topple. 
It's also the ground on which we walk and the spaces we inhabit every day. I work in University College Dublin in the School of Architecture, planning and environmental policy. And recently I've co-edited with Ellen Rowley a book called Making Belfield. While this book was primarily concerned to document the modernist history of the Belfield campus, I also began researching the origin of UCD's name. I found that it had been named, or was most likely named Belfield, by the Latouche family who had briefly lived in the house, Belfield, during the period that they also owned plantations in Jamaica at the turn of the 18th century. Their partners, the Lynch family, with whom they were in business, Together, they owned a plantation called Belfield in St. Mary's, the parish of St. Mary's. So this history of joint names and transfer of names across a very large ocean is interesting in that transfer of information and people from one place to the other. Many polite suburban landscapes in Europe, such as Belfield, were funded by the workings of plantation landscapes in the Caribbean and further afield and design patterns from one side of the world interpenetrated those on the other. These underlying patterns of design, complicity and resonance connect Belfield Dublin 4 and Belfield St Mary's Jamaica, and they also connect Kelly's Plan Jamaica and Westport County Galway. It would be far more comfortable and traditional to write the history of such landscapes separately and to frame them within national rather than transnational histories, but this can no longer be done. It also would, in some ways, be easier to frame them as highly emotional stories and to bring to bear the weight of emotions that one can attach to such documents or to such stories. But in reality, we're talking about a history of the absence of emotion, of a period when people didn't really care about these places or these people. There are many Belfields strewn across the world and many inventories, such as Kelly's pen, if not in Ireland. In some ways, we now need to look at the less emotional aspects of these histories to actually plot how much it transferred into the soil we walk on and the buildings we inhabit to see how we can change what they mean to us and what they mean to the people that are so uncomfortably and distressingly absent from their pages and these places.